Well, good morning, church. It is great to be with you this morning. If you are new with us this morning, if this is your first time, my name is DJ. I'm the associate minister here at the summit. We're going to jump right in this morning. If you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you to go to Mark chapter 13. We're starting a new chapter in Mark today. Mark chapter 13. Uh, open it in your Bibles, pull it up on your phone. You can follow along with us at summitstl.info slash notes. There's a lot going on in this passage. Um, so we're going to kind of break it down. We're going to go section by section. I will warn you. Many biblical scholars, many commentators have said that Mark chapter 13 is one of the most complex and one of the most studied passages in all of Scripture. So if you think that I'm going to answer all of your questions in the next 30 minutes that we have together, you are sadly mistaken. You are going to walk out of here this morning with a lot more questions than you have answers, and that is okay. For some of you, that's going to be frustrating. But here's what I want to do today. I want to spend some time at the beginning of this chapter. What I want to do is I want us to focus, not so much on all the different pieces. I want you to a little bit drown out the first questions that start to come to your mind, because what I want to do this morning, my goal for us this morning is to wrestle with the question, what is the main thing that Jesus wants us to hear? What is the main thing that Jesus wants us to hear? What is it he's wanting us to take away? There's a lot of prophetic language in Mark 13. There's a lot of talking about the end times language. We see phrases like abomination of desolation, things that we've spent a long time, people have spent a long time and should spend a long time talking about and pondering. However, if we don't understand the main message of the passage first, we're going to be extremely unclear as to how everything else fits together. And so with that said, Mark chapter 13 is our text. Before we dive in, let's pray. Awesome God, this morning we welcome you into this place and we ask with all humility, God, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were invited to give a TED Talk, what would it be about? Think about that for, for just a second. It's a great question to throw around at lunch. Um, it may sound like a strange question if you're sitting there and you are unfamiliar with a TED Talk. I learned recently it's not actually named by a guy named Ted. I didn't know that. It stands for Technology, Entertainment, and Design. I just thought there was a guy named Ted who gave a very powerful talk one time, and we said, hey, guys, I think something's here. But if you were invited to give a TED Talk, what would it be? The goal of these talks is to give a short presentation that informs and educates global audiences in an accessible way. And a lot of them focus on one of those three main areas, technology, entertainment, and design, because when you look at it, those three areas shape a massive part of not just our culture, but all of culture. And so I was thinking a lot about this for me. I think mine would be something like the fascinating world of pointless movie trivia. <laughs> Why useless movie facts make your cinematic experience better. I have known, been known for my family to ruin a lot of movies with my random facts. I can tell you that Vince Vaughn almost got the part of Joey in Friends. I know. 
I can tell you that Chris Farley was actually supposed to be the original voice of Shrek. I know. <laughs> I can tell you that Rose's toothbrush in the Titanic was blue. I know. <laughs> but I have all of these facts that I like to spin off, and I think it makes my family's enjoyment of cinematic culture all the better. It's interesting, though, I, I looked it up. The most popular TED Talk ever given, I, I wonder if you can guess what it was about. But the most popular one, the most rewatched TED Talk was about education. And the title of the talk was Do Schools Kill Creativity? And what's so interesting is that just by giving you that title, I've already stirred some sort of emotion and thought in you. Some of you maybe agree, some of you disagree, some of you are just pondering the question. But in this talk, the speaker, Ken Robinson, he challenged his audience. He said that the way that we educate our children, we should really think about. We should rethink how school systems cultivate creativity and the different ways that we should acknowledge different types of intelligence. And whether or not you agree with what he says really isn't the point for me. The point is it gets you thinking. Right? It gets you wrestling with this important question that affects global audiences. And so why do I bring that up? Because here in our passage, we find Jesus heading out of the temple. He spent a lot of time in the temple over the last several sermons, the last, the last uh, short time that we've been in Mark. He's turned over tables. He's driving out merchants. He's confronting misguided religious leaders. He's teaching some very powerful lessons. He's praising a widow for giving everything that she has to God in worship. He's taught lessons on faith that can move mountains. He's taught in the temple about the power of authentic prayer and forgiveness. He's trying to show his hearers the reality of the patience of the Father, of the righteousness of the Father, and of the love that the Father shows us even as broken sinners. But it's at this point in Mark chapter 13 that I would argue is actually one of his most impactful, most moving messages designed to make us rethink every aspect of our culture, of our worldview, and of our very lives. And I'm not trying to take this illustration too far to say that this is Jesus' TED Talk. It's much, much deeper than that because what's going to happen, and we're going to see here in just a couple weeks when we get into Mark chapter 14, Jesus is going to start to near the end of his life. The beginning of his journey to the cross is coming rapidly. And so you have to think Jesus understands this. And so the message that he is choosing to give right now is very intentional. Jesus doesn't waste opportunities. He doesn't waste words. He doesn't waste time. And so I have to believe that when we approach Mark 13, it is supposed to be impactful to us, and we are supposed to receive it in a way that is life-altering, not distracting. And so ultimately, here's what I hope. 
that we come away with. This is what I believe is the main message behind what Jesus is saying, and that's this, that we can be filled, focused, and faithful because of the reality of the presence of God. That we can be filled, focused, and faithful because of the reality of the presence of God. And what Jesus is doing is he's using the temple as he's done many times, but he's using this temple in Jerusalem to teach a very powerful lesson and to try to bring some clarity to a complicated passage. What I want to do is I want to break it down into three phases of the temple. I want to look at the created temple. I want to look at the decreated temple. And then I want to look at the recreated temple. So let's journey through this together. Mark chapter 13, verse 1 says this, And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. You remember the the first time you ever saw an incredible man-made structure? I didn't go a lot of places growing up, but I remember the first time I went to Branson. You'd lie, but when I was thinking about this question, Branson was the first thing that came to mind. And in all of its weirdness, the Shoji Tabuchi Theater in Branson, as a kid, was awe-inspiring. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Have you? Okay, a few of you. You go in there. First off, the outside is just wonderful. You go in, and then you go to the bathroom. Now, I know this is weird, but hang with me for just a second. But as a 10-year-old kid going into the bathroom, and there's a pool table in the bathroom. And I thought, this is what my life is supposed to be. Like, this is what I'm supposed to strive for, to have a pool table in my bathroom. But think for you for a second. Do you remember the first time that you saw an incredible man-made structure for the first time? Maybe it was the Golden Gate Bridge. Maybe you've been able to see the Eiffel Tower, the Statue of Liberty, the Great Wall of China. Or maybe for you, in in all seriousness, you can think back to the first time that you saw the St. Louis Arch. I remember when we used to live in, in Georgia, we traveled back and forth from there to Columbia a lot, and there's a building in Nashville, it's the AT&T building, but it's also known as the Batman Building. And just name that because it's got two big points at the very top. And I remember every time we would see that, that building became a marker for me. We were halfway. We're halfway to home. See, here's here's what's interesting. Jesus and his disciples, they're walking out of the temple, and his disciples look at the temple complex and the buildings and at the structure, and it's stirring something in them. It has become something to them. And we don't really understand this. It's it's hard for us to get a grasp, but the temple in this time was so much more than just a building. In fact, when you look at it, it covered about one-fourth of the area of Jerusalem. It was massive. Oftentimes we think of ancient Jerusalem as a city with a temple in it, and really we need to flip that. Really, Jerusalem was a temple with a small city that surrounded it. This is a massive, complex structure that the disciples are just so focused on. 
But it wasn't always that way. If I can take you to the created temple just for a second, we see that the temple in the Old Testament was actually much different than the temple in Jesus' day. That from the beginning, the temple was always designed to be this unique place of God's presence, the place where Israel could go and experience the presence of God. It was really supposed to be like a microcosm of what Eden was to Adam, a place where God's people can go and be among God's presence. It was this sacred place. But over the centuries, the temple began to evolve. And I'm I'm a visual learner, and so a a good way that kind of helped me visualize it is when you look back, the tabernacle, the original temple, the the portable temple that Israel would take with them as they were wandering through the wilderness, you can imagine could fit four school buses inside of it, stacked two on top of two. And we look at that and think, that's pretty big, right? But then go forward in history, so they they took this portable temple, this tabernacle for 400 years, and then God gives them instructions. He says, hey, now I want you to build a permanent temple. And he charges David's son Solomon. He says, you are going to build this temple. And that completed temple was about the size of 40 school buses stacked on top of each other. We think, man, that's huge. That temple is later destroyed by a Babylonian king. It lays in ruins for a long time until Zerubbabel, one of the kings of Judah, he begins the process to rebuild, and this project takes a long time until you have Herod the Great that comes along and says, we're going to finish this, and we're going to make it massive. And so this temple now that Herod has helped oversee the building of can fit 1,600 school buses inside of it. So you can start to kind of get some imagery of how it has evolved in size over time. And it's adorned with beautiful stones and gems, and there's a lot of pride that people have taken in the building of this structure, one of the most impressive feats in the ancient world. But what's important for us in this moment is to also realize that as the size of the temple evolved, the significance and the purpose of the temple evolved with it. It's funny, actually, at some point in history, it stopped being known as God's temple, and it started being known as Herod's temple. When you read about the history of it, you learn that the, the reason why Herod wanted this structure built was not to invite the presence of God. It was actually to make sure that Jerusalem was in the good graces of the Roman Empire. To really turn Jerusalem into this breathtaking metropolis. That the reason why Jesus has to drive out merchants and money changers is because the temple had become kind of this this place that serves for all the commercial, all the economical, all the political activity, not just religious worship. In many ways, what we see is God has become secondary in his temple. When you think about it, 
Buildings mean something, right? Buildings show what the people living around them value. You can go all the way back to Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel, where the people say, we want to be powerful. We want to be like God, so let's build this structure that reaches the heavens. You can look at things like Herod's Temple and the value of identity and security. You can look at the St. Louis Arch and its value on expansion and flourishing. It's the gateway to the West. You can look at St. Charles County where we value clean cars and drive through coffee. <laughs> Let that sink for a minute. You'll get it. But here's the reason why when you think about it. We live in a culture where our legacy matters. We struggle with the fear that one day we will be forgotten. That we'll find that our life really didn't matter as much as we hoped that it would. So what we do is we build things that we think are going to outlast us. We build buildings, we make scrapbooks, we set corporate programs and policies, we write songs, we hand down lessons. We want our lives to mean something and to leave an impression. And I'm not, please don't hear me say that any of those things are bad. But what's happening in this time that Jesus is in is it became idolatrous. The temple had become something that God never intended it to be. And so this is what makes the next part of Jesus' message so powerful. Starting at verse 2, he says this. Jesus says to them, he says, do you see these great buildings? These ones that you're admiring, these ones that you're so awestruck over, there's not going to be, there's not left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then he sits on the Mount of Olives. He's opposite the temple, so he's overlooking all of Jerusalem. You can see the temple and a few of his disciples, Peter, James, John, Andrew, they ask him privately, they say, tell us, when are these things going to happen? What are going to be the signs when all of these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see, to, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. And I think what Jesus, the big point that Jesus is referencing here is this decreated temple. And I know what you're thinking in this moment, because I thought it too. DJ has decreated a word. And we're going to pretend that it is, because it sounds good in my points. But when you think about it, this is the place where we a little bit start to get like Peter and James and John and Andrew, and our focus may start to shift to the wrong thing too soon. Because Jesus says here, he says, hey, do you see these buildings? There's going to come a time where, where they're not going to stand anymore. And the immediate reaction of disciples is says, hey, why don't you tell us when that time's going to be? 
right? Like if this is going to happen, it'd be cool if we could put it on our calendar so that we know, right? I mean, right? Like am I making, I'm like, hey, Jesus, I've read some things. I'd really take some comfort knowing that it's going to happen a week from Tuesday, right? But I think they're missing the point here. Because notice, Jesus doesn't answer their question. The first thing he says is see that no one leads you astray. Translate that another way. Don't lose focus. Don't miss the point. And I remember when I looked at this passage and the more you look at it, the less you see the deconstruction of the temple, the less you start seeing this end times language. Yes, those are all pieces that are there that we should explore. But I believe when you really steep in this passage, you see something amazing about the presence of God. And you see a warning about the dangers for us when we try to find satisfaction or peace in anything outside of his presence. It reminds me, actually, there's a prophecy in the Old Testament, in the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 13, where God says this through the prophet Micah. He says, I will destroy all your idols and your sacred pillars, so you will never again worship the work of your own hands. Friends, our legacy, the things that we create, can become our idol. The things that we do every day, our accomplishments, what God has given us and allowed us to do to glorify him, so often can get twisted to become idols in our lives if we're not careful. Legacies are good. Accomplishments are good when they point to the creator. And the creator is not us. I was reminded about this this week, actually, if, you've, uh, if you followed the NFL in the postseason last weekend. Um, one of the things that stood out the most to me is if you, if you, if you saw live the post-game interview from the Houston Texans quarterback, C.J. Stroud. And if you don't know anything about football, let me just catch you up really quickly. It's his first year playing in the NFL. This was the first year that he uh, had taken the Texans, who were one of the worst teams in the league last year. He'd taken them to their first playoff game since 2019. And even though things didn't go how they wanted it to this weekend, and even though there was still a lot of uncertainty about where their future was going to go in the playoffs, all of that, after the game last weekend, Stroud was asked about his win and he was asked, what does this accomplishment mean to you? And what he said live, the very first words that came out of his mouth, was he said, first and foremost, I want to give all glory and praise to my Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we may look at that as a, a simple thing. We see it uh, often with athletes and different different people, but, but I actually think that those moments are very significant moments. Because this young man, 
who is literally being given the opportunity, handed the mic to bring glory to himself, to say how great he is, how great his accomplishments were, how he took one of the worst teams in the league and turned it around. That's what the media wants him to do. And he says, no, first and foremost, glory to God. And then here's where the story really got interesting, if you followed it at all this week. When they replayed it, they took that part out. I know. And there's a lot of backlash that's happening as a result. But, but for me in this moment, I think it really illustrates something here. That the way that Jesus is asking us to be focused in this life is countercultural to everything else. And this is why Jesus, not really answering the disciples' questions, he answers an even bigger question. And he says, see to it that no one leads you astray. Many will come and say that they're the Savior. Don't listen to them. You're going to see chaos. You're going to experience chaos. Don't be alarmed. You're going to see and experience wars and earthquakes and famines. But don't freak out. That's what he says. Don't be anxious. And I look at those three things and I say, Jesus, I think those are pretty okay things to be anxious about. And so then that makes me think, okay, Jesus is countercultural. The gospel is countercultural. So I need to think, why is he telling me to not be anxious? Because of what comes in the last part of verse 8. Look at this. This is awesome. Jesus says, these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. See, here's, here's where we struggle when we look at passages like this. We, we tend to put all of these and we call these passages and, and the rest of Mark 13 as having to deal with end times. And while that's true to, to some extent, but let me also just say this, every generation has been living in the end times since the resurrection of Jesus. That, that when Jesus walks out of the tomb, that is this pivotal moment that redefines how Christians should look at chaos around them. That yes, we live in a world where there are pandemics and there are wars and there are death and there are famines and so on and so on and so on. But what Jesus says is the reason that these things are happening is because there's new birth coming. That there is a new creation coming. That it's, it's, again, we're looking at somebody who doesn't mince words, who doesn't say what he doesn't mean. He doesn't say, hey, when you see these things, get ready because it's the beginning of the end. No, he says this is the beginning of birth, of life, of something new. So don't be anxious. Which brings us to our last phase of this, which is this recreated temple. And next week, we're going to see that there's a, a big pivot point in this passage. 
I want to look at it just very quickly right now. If you jump down to verse 24 through 26, Jesus says this, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will darken, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. You know, we get this mixed up sometimes. We, in, in, our, in our minds, maybe we visualize Jesus coming out from the clouds, coming through the clouds. But what does it say? It says, no, he's coming in the clouds. And when you look throughout Scripture, when we see this kind of language, most often what it's talking about is the localized presence of God. That when the Son of Man comes in the cloud, it's the sign of this recreated temple that's coming. There's no longer a need for any sort of man-made structure to symbolize the presence of God. The presence of God is now filling the earth as it was in the Garden of Eden. And when you go back and look through this passage, there's a lot of creation language here. Because what Jesus wants his disciples to hear is, listen, there's a new creation coming. There's a new creation in you, and there's a new creation in the universe because of what Jesus has done. Friends, let me, let me wrap up with this because I think this is important here. Believing the gospel is not simply believing in your own individual salvation. Believing the gospel is, is not just believing in your own personal redemption. It's so much more than that. When we just believe a gospel that only focuses on our individual salvation, what that turns us into is Christians that stick their heads in the sand and just wait for everything to be okay. Rather, the beautiful gospel that God has brought to us believes both that Jesus has redeemed us as individuals, but not just personally. but it's believing that in the act of redemption that all of creation will be restored. And so what was Jesus' message in this moment as he gets near to the cross? Let me give you three things real quick. I believe what he's trying to tell us is he's warning us, don't get enticed by building your legacy. Rather, be filled with the longing to make God's presence known. I believe he's warning us, don't get crushed by the brokenness and the chaos of the world, but rather be focused on God's strength and of his promises to endure. And I believe he is telling us, don't be anxious about the end but remain faithful for this is only the beginning of new life. Jesus is saying we can be filled, we can be focused, and we can be faithful because God's presence in and around us is a reality. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for your goodness, God, for your mercy. God, that even in the midst of our confusion and grief and hurt and the pain and the struggle, God, that we face so often, God, you have reminded us that you are with us. God, that your spirit indwells within us. And God, that your plan of redemption is to restore all that is broken. God, to make all things new again. And so God, I pray for us as we follow you, God, that you would calm our anxieties. God, that you would still our turmoil. God, that you would help us to understand what great comfort it is that your presence is in this place. And God, that even though that the road that we walk is challenging and scary and hard, it's narrow, God, you have promised a great new birth where everything is as it should be. And so, God, with that we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.